Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by that infamously unharmonious sower of discord, Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind Danway.com. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing very well, Kaiser. Uh, Beijing, Jeremy, you will agree, is a riot of sensations, right? A whole lot to take in visually, a, a range of things that taste, uh, not always very pleasant array of olfactory offerings. And, of course, a very distinct soundscape. Jeremy, you and I have lived in Beijing now for, what, I mean, like 40 years between us, right? Yeah. And we've both lived in a variety of places, from the high-rises to the hutongs, or in, in, in the opposite order. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're both really, you know, familiar with the, the widely varied sounds of the city, yeah? Yes. So, Indeed. I mean, and it's not just the, 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 the Beijing symphony of, of, of splitting, which is perhaps its most famous sound right, at the moment. Which, which right, I, I remember... Um, a piece where it was described as sounding like a cappuccino steamer. The <laughs> sound. <laughs> anyway, um, these days I live close to the South Gate of Worker Stadium, right by the South Gate of Worker Stadium. So I hear everything from the, the cheering of the crowds at the soccer matches to the Mando Pop concerts to the ceaseless nighttime dunce, dunce, dunce of the, all the fucking discos near me. And, of course, the gunning of the Maserati and Lamborghini engines of the Fuardai assholes who are like... That's you know. the contemporary soundscape of Beijing. Exactly right. <laughs> fortunately, I mean, in the morning, it's it's completely different. I hear uh, this old guy who does these weird vocal exercises, like like about fifty million times every morning. Uh, it, it's crazy. I wake up to this all the time. But fortunately, all of these sounds and much else about old Beijing is being preserved through the efforts of our guest today, Colin Chinnery, who is an artist, a musician, and a curator. Colin's family home on Shijia Hutong uh, is now the Shijia Hutong. Museum, of which he is one of the founders. It's a very great pleasure to welcome you to Seneca, Colin. Hi there. <laughs> it's um, the 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 Shijia Hutong home of yours. I mean, tell tell us who your your ancestors were and and how you came to to be associated with this this museum. Yeah, um, my great grandfather was the um, was the last mayor of Beijing under the Qing Dynasty. Mm. So yeah, so he. Um, was what you call a Yipin Guan is like a the top le- level government official. So he had a, a fair, fairly uh, reasonably sized house in the center of Beijing. What uh, was yeah. his name, Colin? His uh, his name was Lin Fupeng. Okay. And the official title of his uh, post was the Shun Tian Fu Yin, which is the mayor of Beijing and also in charge of the Hebei province as well. Um, so yeah, he had a, a very nice large place in the center of Beijing. Uh, so it's like it was a, 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 a courtyard that went from one hutong all the way to the next hutong. So it's the largest size hutong you can get. That's, that's like 150 meters. Right? I mean, it, yeah, that's deep, right. Yeah. You know, that's a, in depth. Wow. Um, and, and then a part of that, which is actually the back garden, he gave to my grandmother or his daughter as a wedding gift when she got married. And that was uh, that was their house. So that was my grandmother's house, my grandmother's grandfather, and this is where my mother grew up. Um, so that's that's um, the actual place where, that is now called the Shijia Hutong Boguan, the Shijia Hutong Museum. Okay, Shijia Hutong, just just to orient people who who may not live in Beijing or who who live in Beijing and may want to visit and don't know who Shijia Hutong is, even though they could very easily find it using Baidu maps. Uh, is it's it's north of Jinbajie, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's so it's it's just west of the third ring road, maybe uh, three hundred meters in from from uh, the, of the second ring road uh, of of the east second ring road. So uh, and it happens a, to be the hutong in which I got married. 
Oh yes, in, indeed. I remember. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, uh, I I, uh, I was I was kind of the you were the stand-in MC? priest yeah. or whatever. For, <laughs> the for, priest, for, that's for, right. Uh, high priest, <laughs> the satanic priest. Of <laughs> I love it. Uh, anyway, so let's let's talk about. Uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of people who romance on 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 what you know, uh, life in the Sihuyar and in the Hutongs. Uh, what is a Hutong? Uh, where does that word come from? It is not a Mandarin word, or it's not a Chinese it's, word. It's a Mongolian word, yeah. Yeah, it's a Mongolian it word. Came and, and from during the what you call the Yuan Dynasty when when the Mongolian uh, the, the 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 empire ran China basically. And sure. During during that time, yeah, the, they they built this this uh, system of. Of one-story flat housing, um, and that hutong is now is the word that they use for it. Now I don't I don't know the exact et- etymology, but there isn't, I don't think there isn't a real, very very um, uh, accurate um, description of exactly what it means in the Mongolian originally. But that's where it comes from. Okay, and this particular sihuyan in in Shijia hutong. Now, so it was in your family. Now, what happened to the hutong during the communist period? I mean, what happened to you, specifically your you are your 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 family? Well, my my family left um, after the Japanese occupation uh-huh. uh, because my grandfather uh, Chen Xiying uh, was the China representative to uh, UNESCO. I thought it was in Paris at the time, uh, so he was working for the nationalist government um, as a representative of the Chinese government. So they my my family joined my grandfather at the time outside of China, and then. Uh, China changed hands from the uh-huh. nationalist to the, the communist, and then my grandfather, my my family didn't come back, and therefore um, it went into the hands of our um, caretaker family. Uh, so it was still ours, but the caretakers were, you know, uh, were were living in there. And then who, who were they? They were um, well. The, the name of the family is Chang, mm-hmm. and uh, so they were friends of the family. My my grand, grandparents. Uh, so they looked after the place, of course. But of course, in during that time, the communists had um, partitioned a, it. In yeah, they you know they they made use of it first as in different things, first as a factory, and then as a this and a that. Um, eventually, it was used as a kindergarten. That was its last use. Uh, they uh, gave us our fang uh, back, our what do you call it? What, how do you call that in English? Right, right. The, your, the, 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 right the deeds, right, the right, house, yeah. right? Um, and so we had that, and so in in you know in 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 legal entitlement it was ours. Uh, this but is actually, what, in, we in the eighties then. Or this in, was no in the nineties, oh, uh, and then we, so we, but we couldn't use it because there was a we couldn't garden in there and so on. Um, and so we couldn't really make use of it or get it back or get swap it for anything else uh, until um, nearly two thousand, and then um, they made an offer. The government made an offer which. Isn't exactly a kind offer, but you know it's the only offer that was around. Um, so my mother took it, and so it swapped it for basically swapped the whole thing for a small apartment on the fourth ring road. Isn't exactly uh, what you call a, a fair swap, but you know, but kind of an offer she couldn't refuse. <laughs> <laughs> well, could, but you know, never mind. Water under the bridge. Um, it's yeah. So so it went, but we had a very very important clause in that uh, in that agreement, and said that sure, you know, this this is a swap, but you can't use this for commercial means. So um, when the kindergarten moved out. Uh, the government couldn't make commercial use of it, so it couldn't, you know, open a hotel there or convert it into 
I don't know, a nightclub or something. I mean, they couldn't do anything commercial with it. So it kind of lay derelict, more or less derelict. Mm-hmm. Um, and the funny thing was that at that time, the Prince's Trust, which is this, like Prince Charles, Prince's Trust, mm-hmm. they have a, um, a a longer name for the company that they, they use for from kind of a wide variety of, of activities. And um, Prince's Charities Foundation or something like that. And they were looking. They had a. They were looking for a Chinese project. So they were doing going to do a Chinese project, and they needed the place to open some kind of a museum that they were. They thought would be um, based on the idea of heritage, which Prince Charles is is uh, interested in. So um, and in all of Beijing, they couldn't find um, an empty hutung. I mean, where do you find an empty hutung? Uh, and then they found. My place, you know, my family's place, which was empty and it was in a perfect location in a hutung with a lot of grand history. Uh, so, um, so that's the location that they they chose, and they talked to us, and we said, "Well, fine." And then they re- they rebuilt it, so they raised it down to the ground, really, and rebuilt the whole thing um, based on whatever historical information they had. Um, they, had, they had some drawings, they had some aerial photographs, they had some bits and bobs of information coupled with experts in, in Hutung architecture. And was your family involved in the restoration project? We were consulted. Okay. Uh, no, so, so I wouldn't say involved in you know, the technical aspect, but we were consulted. And so part of it was a reconstruction of the old uh, building, and some of it was, a, was more suited to its future purpose as uh, a museum of sorts. Sure. And uh, what is the uh, intention of the museum in terms of, uh, because, I mean, the Hutongs have a long history, mm. you know, we're going back to the Yuan dynasty. What period does the museum uh, emphasize? Recent period. Um, it's a Hutong that, because we can't call ourselves a Hutong museum, we don't have the resources to represent Hutong culture or Hutong life in general. Um, so it has to be something much more focused. So they decided that um, that the actual theme should be the Shijia Hutong itself, the name of the Hutong, that because it's a Hutong with a lot of history, a lot of famous people lived there, organizations, uh, embassies, all kinds of, you know, so it was a, a kind of, in a way, by introducing Shijia Hutong, you're kind of introducing Hutongs in general, but without pretending to represent Hutongs in general. So they represent a lot of, like, for the Renyi, uh, their their living quarters with their Rini is a people's theatre company, which is uh, China's most famous theatre company. So they they their living quarters were in that hutong. People like Hua Guofeng, who is the chairman Before, Hua, yeah. you know the the successor to Chairman Mao, um, he lived in that hutong. Rong Yiren lived in that hutong. Rong Yiren is the, the father of uh, Chinese. Uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics. Sure. In other words, capitalism. Capitalism, China. capitalism with communist characteristics. <laughs> yes, exactly. Of the famous Rung family. Sitek. The, the banking family of China. Sitek, yeah, exactly. So you live in that hutong. Um, and, so, uh, and the list goes on and on. Because my, then my grandma. Huang's mother lived in that hutong. Yeah, Hong Huang's mother. Hong Huang lived in that hutong. Hong Huang lived in that Hong Huang, for those of you who, who don't know her. The publisher and media figure. Right. CIMG is her company. And, of course, then my grandparents. So my grandparents were famous writers during the um, Republican era. My mother, my grandmother is Lin Shuhua, my grandfather is Chen Xiying. And, um, so tell us about Lin Shuhua. I mean, I mean she's, she's familiar to people like Jeremy and myself, but maybe some of our listeners aren't familiar with her, with her, her work. She's a writer and a painter. Uh, and um, her, 
literature style. She was um, at the forefront of what you call the May 4th movement, which is a modernization movement of uh, the 20s and 30s. Uh, that really kind of it started in the late 10s of 1919, but then it, as, a, as a movement, it was about modernization of China, of ideas, of culture, of life. And um, the, the new and culture movement, right? the new culture movement, and her as a as a woman writer. There was a few women writers in those days um, that really represented modern thinking. So she was one of uh, those women writers, and she uh, described uh, life in very intimate and very poetic uh, language style. Uh, very very delicate and very precise writer. Uh, my. My grandfather, her husband Chen Xiyang, her, her his name was Chen Yuan, and his writer's name was Chen Xiyang. Uh, is most famous for Xiyang Xianhua, which is a collection of essays commenting on the culture and politics of the day. That is still quite influential today. He is uh, most famous amongst Chinese people of my generation and older as uh, the enemy of Lu Xun. Lu Xun, the father of modern <laughs> Chinese literature, um, hated my grandfather because he had different opinions from him um, regarding uh, student student movement and student protests and things like that. So they had uh, an exchange of of essays and and uh, exchange of letters. Lu Xun um, was more of a hothead and a firebrand. Exactly. My my grandfather was much more of the kind of like intellect. Uh, what do you call it? The Junzi, uh, uh, yeah. much more quiet, uh, studious, scholarly kind of uh, gentleman character. Gentleman in the Chinese. Chinese Junzi tradition, as in the the, the scholar. We often forget that the New Culture Movement actually contained both of 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 these types. You know, for for every Li Dazhao and Chen Duxiu, there was there was also somebody who was you know sort of um, you know more into to not throwing up the baby with the bathwater as they attacked all sorts of aspects of Confucian. I think that was that was uh, part of him. I think it was what part of the problem uh, the the. Differences between Lu Xun and my grandfather was exactly exactly that, um, and so so regardless of their differences, I mean you know um, my grandfather just to give you an idea, uh, there's someone who um, got on Lu Xun's nerves. Lu Xun was the father of Chinese literature at that stage. My grandfather was uh, the grand old age of 21 when he was having a little <laughs> literary fight with the, with Lu Xun. So he was very precocious and talented. He ended up uh, he was a he was a professor at at uh, Beida Peking University, and moved on to be the um, the the dean of the school of literature at Wuhan University. And Wuhan University, which is now not a big deal in, in those days, it was it was the first Chinese homegrown university. So it attracted a lot of talent from from throughout China. Um, and so he was. Um, he was a part of that. He was an essayist and a writer, rather than a, my grandmother was a um, was was a, a fictional writer, let's say. Right. And and the two of them were very, were very much part of this um, modernization movement, this um, modern culture movement. And your grandmother actually had the chance to visit the museum, didn't she? Well, yes. Um, well, no, no. Sorry, the museum museum opened this uh, last year, and and she died. She passed away in nineteen ninety. So, but she she when she came back to Beijing, she had the chance to before she passed away in hospital in Beijing. Uh, we took her back to her um, to her old home, so the Shijia Hutong, her own place. When it was still an elementary. Oh uh, yeah, so it was a kindergarten. A kindergarten. And uh, an amazing thing, which which still kind of almost kind of brings tears to my eyes, but I won't embarrass you by crying. 
live um, was when we took her, I mean, she was basically barely conscious and she was already, you know, in a kind of different kind of dream world in, sure. those, in those days. It was very last days. And we, so, you know, we're there with lots of nurses and, put, and carried her in on a stretcher. Surrounded by kids, I mean, it was the 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 courtyard was unrecognisable as it was, uh, let's say, you know, fifty years ago, um, or sixty years ago, and pulled in. And as soon as she went into the court the courtyard, and this is the weirdest thing, she said in Chinese, "My mum's calling me for lunch," you know, "Well, mama jiao xu chi fan," which is weird. It is so uncanny because, um, I mean, you know, something just triggered. A childhood memory just took her straight back to her right. childhood, and Jesus said, "You know, my mom's calling me for lunch." It's a very strange thing. Yeah, a little Proust going on here, right? Well, uh, so tell me, what was the condition of it? I mean, so you 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 saw the place in 1990, presumably when the kindergarten was still there in operation. How, I mean, what required it to be completely raised and rebuilt? Was it so so utterly dilapidated at that point? Yeah, it was pretty much dilapidated. We have photographs showing what it was like, um, sure, and the, the whole thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, dilapidated is a good word, and I think um, you know you could try to restore it but then it would probably be a lot more expensive and a lot more effort to try to restore this dilapidated series of buildings rather than just to raise it and then rebuild it mm. and uh we found um bricks from the qing dynasty uh, so and you know so, so you preserved many of the materials things like roof tiles and bricks we tr- and- yeah exactly we prefer we preserved as much as the original structure as we could in terms of materials Mm, yeah. the door stones and, and, and things exactly like that. yeah and, uh, what was left yeah wow I, I i i really need to go visit this museum i i can't believe that i haven't been there already you're also working on something in Wuhan right now is that correct that's right yeah tell, tell us about that project um it's a museum project or it's a contemporary art museum project um it's a small scale it's basically a contemporary art space for projects where i can invite um artists and curators to do projects there um, and we're trying to build not only a a museum or a, what do you call it in Europe a Kunsthaler, a small scale contemporary art space, uh, but also a whole kind of um, uh, kind of ecosystem, a financial ecosystem to make it sustainable long term. So um, one for the first, you know, the, at the core of it there's a museum, but then surrounding this is a whole system of other things. Next to it is this uh, a mall, basically, uh, which has got a cultural theme. So it's trying to create a new kind of uh, way of combining commercial and culture uh, life uh, in Wuhan, which is quite a new thing. It might not be new in somewhere like Beijing or Shanghai, but in Wuhan it's certainly new. Mm-hmm. And then we've got somewhere out of town on the mountaintop, we've got um, kind of a retreat where people can do events and things like that. And we've got a salon where we where we develop um, collect our collector base in, in Wuhan. But and at the core of it, of, what I'm responsible for is the, the contemporary art museum. How much of the, the scene already exists in terms of artists and, 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 and small galleries and curators? There's an art school in Wuhan, which um, the Hubei Art School. So that's, that's quite famous. And then um, and there is an art scene there, but the, the, there isn't much of uh, a contemporary, a th- there isn't a thriving contemporary art scene there. Uh, because there isn't anything to support an art scene there yet. Um, and that's what I think we're trying to start to uh, create in Wuhan. Um, so, I mean, a lot of there's, there are lots of famous Wuhan artists, but of course, in order to develop their careers, they, they generally they go to Shanghai or Beijing. Right. Yeah. 
I'm guessing that your connection with Wuhan has something to do with the time that your your grandparents spent there. It's a coincidence, but it's it's a nice coincidence. Okay, um, it's, it's... I mean, there was somebody <clears throat> there with the idea of doing this um, institution, and they needed a curator to run the, the institution, and um, so eventually they found they found me, uh, and then then it then these these coincidences um, you know appeared or resurfaced. And, and how long have you been in Beijing now? Uh, from 1979 until now, I've been coming back and forth uh, okay. altogether about 21, 22 years, oh, something right. like that. Yeah. Uh, Colin, right. just to, uh, back to the the Wuhan um, uh, project, um, is there any particular reason why you think it happened in Wuhan? And can you talk a little bit about this type of project, which I understand is um, becoming more common in, 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 in provincial <laughs> cities? I mean, I think Karen Smith is working on something perhaps a little similar in, in Xi'an. Yes, well, I, I mean, it's second-tier cities like, you know, Xi'an and Wuhan. Um, uh, they've been really coming up, uh, you know, in terms of, in terms of all, well, all kinds of social issues and, and cultural things uh, for the past five years. And um, with contemporary art, it's, it's, been, um, it's been really nice to see that all these, all these kind of institutions are popping up all over China. It's, it's no longer just Beijing and Shanghai. And um, the reason why is because now, instead of all the rich people just concentrating in Beijing and Shanghai, um, they are they are also kind of developing strength in these other in these other important cities around China. And so, with some things, it's for example OCAT, um, which Karen works for, it's the the Huaqiaocheng, the Overseas Chinese uh, Terminus, I think terminal. Um, and it's a real estate project that has places all over China. So it has, you know, it's in Shenzhen, it's in Shanghai, it's in Beijing, and it's in Xi'an, it's in Wuhan. So, um, for example, the place that Karen works for, which is this real estate, this uh, pan-China real estate organization, uh, they have they have museums uh, popping up wherever they have their real estate um uh, centered so that they have their what do you call it deep pan mm-hmm. they have their you know, low pan they have their karma back from these <clears throat> evil developers so things. yeah so they so they've they've got a place in they've got a museum in Shenzhen they've got one in they've got two places in Shanghai and Karen worked for the place in Xi'an there's going to be one in Wuhan as well but I shouldn't be uh, trumpeting the horn of of uh, another organization to talk about <laughs> ourselves <laughs> but I mean that's one example of why you know like the OCT is one example another example is you know uh, my organization is basically um, an, um, a businesswoman an investor who loves culture and so she had some you know she she had some uh, um, some money to to do something and the question is to do what uh, that would make a biggest impact or make a contribution or do something that is just interesting that other people aren't doing. So she came up with the idea of, of creating a company that would have this kind of sustainable model that would, on one hand, support culture in the commercial context, on the other side, support culture on a non-profit, and then try to make a system that, that is kind of um, sustainable and internally workable, which is actually the first model of its kind in China um, to, to try to do something like that. So it's not, it's not easy. It's been under development for three years already. Well, we're, I'm, I'm primarily interested today in talking to you about the Beijing Historic Sound Project. And we were already run along, so we better get on to the sound. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, and I do want to spend some time with this. And uh, 
uh, we're very privileged that you actually uh, brought with you a, a number of recordings uh, of these. Tell us about this this whole process of recording and, and what it is that we're going to be hearing. Uh, these are not actual in the field live recordings of of people, for example, uh, hawking various wares, selling things, or, or repairing things. These these are uh, reproductions or. Or yeah. studio recordings. Yeah, what what I'm trying to do is is recreate a history of Beijing using sound only, um, and this process is uh, as sounds they disappear. You can't you, you, in order to capture an old sound, sound that happened 50 years ago, you have to recreate it, um, and so the recreation of a sound. Uh, each sound becomes a kind of project in itself. So with some sounds, it's easier. For example, if there are street hawkers that used certain um, instruments to uh, make a make a noise to sell their wares, that's the easiest possible sound reconstruction you can imagine. Because all you have, you've got, if you, as long as you get your hands on on such an artifact, you shake it around and it makes a sound. And so that was easy enough. So we started with those. Um, and that's what the, what they're called xiangqi, which means sounding instruments. So let's listen to some of these xiangqi, these sounding instruments first. And uh, I'll play one and then you can explain to me what, what each of these are. This is uh, the sound made by the fortune teller. Okay, so, so Suan Ming. Yeah. Yes. Very ominous kind of tolling. What, what is the thing that makes that sound? It's a small gong that um, it, it requires an, a particular small gong with a with a lump in the middle and you need this little special hammer and you just tap it and it makes this noise. And then everybody in the hutongs knows, knows the fortune that. teller is coming. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing about why you you mean to make these noises and, and make these hawking sounds in hutongs, because hutongs are insular, you, you live inside them. Everybody's in a courtyard behind a In a courtyard, a yeah. Mm. So you need to make a specific sound so that people inside, they don't need to see you, but they need to hear you mm. and they know what is being sold. And very often it doesn't have to be that loud because if you're a rich person, you live way inside the hutong, you're not going to hear it. It's the guy at the door, the doorman will hear it. And will say, ah, do you need this or do the you need that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's listen to this next one. Oh, that's a Huan Jiang Yang. Um, that's for women's makeup. That's someone for selling women's Cosmetics. makeup. Cosmetics. Cosmetics, so, yeah. So the, the Mary Kay or Avon lady. Right. right. <laughs> Uh, that uh, sounds like a Dui Jun Zuo to me. Um, that, that's uh, the 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 Xiu uh, Jiao. Yeah, uh, it's for for, uh, for feet. To sand foot down repair. your calluses and bunions. <laughs> pedicure, pedicure, pedicure. Thank you. <laughs> foot repair. <laughs> foot repair. <laughs> yeah, which despite the sound of its profession, it was actually one of the more, you know, the more uh, respected professions of the street trade in those days. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, that's the guy who's, who um, repairs fans. Yeah, it's for, for electric fan repair. No, yeah. Electric fan no, no, repair. it wouldn't be electric. No. <laughs> sure. <This would> <laughs> Old-fashioned fans. fans. Paper fans. Paper fans. Yeah, yeah, you have to explain that um, in the past, you know, the people that lived in these hutongs were not poor. So, you know, it's not like they didn't have money to, re- you know, they, like they had a paper fan, it was ripped, and they can't buy another one, they have to repair it. People had fans that had some calligraphy or painting on them, and, and you, you use them all the time. And 
So it's not the value of the fan itself. It's a fact that this fan is a cultural artifact. You know, it's just, there, it's a, there's a painting or calligraphy or something like that on it. And so the fan repairman was someone who, you know, repaired this artifact rather than kind of like, you know, use glue to kind of like glue the bits of shag, shaggy so, paper So, I mean, together, you, d- you, know? you should think of him as a sort of an antique repairman rather than a... Like a, Along those lines, a, a, a much, who a much more TV. skilled mm. uh, right. kind of repairman. Restorationist. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, a little bit like that. This one. Uh, that is the medicine man. Oh my God, that sounds tribal. Um, there are different kinds of um, hu cheng. Hu cheng uh, is, is a donut-shaped um, bronze object uh, with a hollow inside and little balls inside metal balls inside so when you shake it around the metal balls go around the inside of the the, the bronze donut and make the sound and there's different kind of hochung there's small ones that you put on your finger and there's larger ones that you have to hold in your hand and it's a bronzed donut shaped object with if you imagine the donut being empty inside and these metal balls shaking around inside of it making this kind of quite nice tingling sound and if the, the higher pitch tingling sound, the small ones, that's for things like coughs or, I don't know, you know, it's minor things. And then you got larger donuts, which, which are for slightly more tricky uh, illnesses. So the deeper the sound, the, the, the worse the, the condition the doctor's <laughs> able to treat. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and so this is what I am familiar with. Yeah, yeah, Zheng Jingwei, that is... Um, the knife the, sharpener. The knife sharpener, sharpener. Yeah, right, right. yeah. And that one you still hear today, right? That's you one do. of exactly. the ones that's it's alive. Exactly, one of the few ones. I think all the others have disappeared now. And so this is a, a bunch of little plates of metal that are sort of, of, of stacked, stacked overlapping each other. And yes. they're just on a leather backing that is just sort of... They don't even have a leather backing. They're just tied together like fish scales so okay. that when you, you, you just... Um, you clack, clack them it. together and they make a clack, 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 clack. Clack, clack, clack. That's their sound. Yeah. So, so the, the, those are all the xiangqi. Those are the, the instruments that make noises. And but what's um, maybe also familiar to a lot of people are the sounds of various seasons of, of the people who are, are plying very various services, like uh, the, this one, for example. Yeah, so you're listening to this hawker from inside the courtyard. So you hear the kind of the cicadas and the birds louder than the guy who's outside, uh, you know, in the where you're in the courtyard and he's it's outside. Distinctly and summery, anyway. though. Yeah. And very summery. Um, and the challenge of, of those hawkers is that they don't, they really don't exist anymore. And um, that person that we just heard uh, was making a performance of um, this hawker, this hawker and... Um, while there might be some kind of uh, references that are true to it, uh, I don't think it's an accurate one from based from uh, from what I've heard from older gentlemen who who remember those hawking sounds. So the challenge is, you know, to um, to get the older people residents who remember those sounds to work with people who can perform those sounds and to come up with a with a, an as accurate as possible approximation of what those people actually sounded like in those days. Let's listen to another one this from the summer uh, while we're still in that season. Uh, this is for somebody who repairs umbrellas. Mm-hmm. 
useful in Hong Kong. <laughs> where umbrellas are being damaged. Can you talk a little bit, Colin, about uh, like the, the type of Chinese that these calls are based in? Because, I mean, the, the people like your ancestors, the rich uh, and the officials, all lived inside the city walls of Beijing. And the, the, the vendors and hawkers were actually from outside, as I understand it. Which is probably yeah. still true today, but um, well, so it's interesting. It's a mix. I mean, I think um, a lot of older, by the end of the Qing Dynasty, um, Beijing was already a migratory, you know, city. It wasn't a city of just pure Beijing. It's like my grandmother was from from Guangdong originally, from Canton originally. Uh, my my great grandfather was from Guangdong, so my grand my grandmother was also. My grandfather was a Wuxi. So the people who lived in the Hutongs might have been old Beijingers or might from from all over Beijing. But the people who were hawking <clears throat> wouldn't have probably had a very accurate, very old Beijing accents because the the old the Beijing people, the people with the perfect Beijing accents that we 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 recognize today definitely would have been living living inside the city. And the people outside the city wouldn't have been from Wuxi and wouldn't have been from Guangdong, but they would have been from people from Hebei and people around Beijing. And so they would have had an accent that was similar to Beijing, but not quite. It's kind of like, just not, right, like uh, we hear in the accents of those taxi drivers that are from Miyun and from around Beijing. So it would have been a different kind of accent, a more kind of Hebei-like accent. Right. I mean, today you still encounter cab drivers from Miyun or from, from Pingu or uh, other outlying uh, suburbs of Beijing whose Chinese is, well, for me, sometimes even difficult to understand. Yeah, you don't have to get that far out of no, the city no, to know that. Leisure, right? What about, you know, the need to make themselves heard? Does that uh, lead to certain sort of changes in, in the language and the way they emphasize certain parts of the word because they just have to get their voice over the high walls? Um, they have to, you have to be distinctive. Um, they don't have to be so loud because as long as the doorman hears them, uh, then, you know, they can, they can, you know, like call, oh, by the way, you know, the guy repairing umbrellas is here, you know, man, you know, you know, we have, you know, if he knows that there's an umbrella needed fixing, he'll, he'll, he'll call him in. So it doesn't need to be so loud, but it needs to be distinctive, um, so that, you don't even need to hear what he's saying, but you'll know what he's selling, you know, even if it's a call. Um, so the, the issue is really right now is for me to uh, restart this process of, of gathering the older residents who remember these people. And, and um, these, these sounds were recorded last year, and, um, but I'm not happy with them. I'm not happy with how accurate they, they need to be. So uh, to to gather around these older residents together with the people who can perform these sounds and then come up with something which is much more historically accurate. Have they, have they been very receptive to your efforts? They're, they're, they're enthusiastic about this, I imagine. I mean, because last night mm. I was at a dinner party with a bunch of my old Beijing friends, a lot of people from the, the rock scene, and we were all just howling in delight as various people did their impressions of, of these, these, these people. You know, I mean, some of them were really funny, like the guys who sell nian yu mi. I mean, it's 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 funny because it's really kind of they 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 sound almost like they've got sticky corn in their mouths and they're yummy yummy. So it's really nian kind of right. And they're they're always so distinctive, like the guys who sell tofu. It's like tofu. I think that's very much that's very accurate. Is is the idea is to be distinctive, so you know exactly. You don't have to hear the two words tofu. 
but that particular sound you just know automatically it's doleful um so it's the distinctiveness that that comes i think that comes from a tradition of the beijing hawkers that is still it's gone now but maybe let's say 20 years ago there was still that around it's not completely gone i mean the the people who like the show polar the the people who will buy or take your your old junk and then try and resell it i mean they they have calls which they do but they probably don't they don't have any difference between like beijing or any other place in china they show polar in the same way and they have the same call and they're Mm. not from beijing Mm. so yeah they call out because they need to call out to uh, there's no other way but that doesn't come from let's say a cultural tradition and it's not part of a kind of, I suppose, an ecosystem of sounds that you'd have. It's just... I mean, it'll be part of my project because um, I'm not just interested in traditional sounds. I'm interested in all sounds that, are, right. that are, happen in Beijing. But uh, but I think as as I get more and more of these sounds together and I plug them into the system and you can mm. put them into different contexts, you will be able to... It won't just be me saying, you know, oh, I don't believe this become, This is part of a Beijing tradition. It's it, You'll be able to discern for yourself and it's bec- it will become a, a resource for research or or fun or anything. The, the sound for me that is the quintessential Beijing, old Beijing sound, though, is the sound of pigeon whistles. That kind of... Yeah. Kind Explain of, a little what they are because not everyone is familiar with... Uh, so, I mean, my understanding is that the people who raise pigeons and, and sort of train them to fly around in circles carve these kind of almost like pan pipes uh, that that are activated by the pa- sound of passing air. And they're uh, in, in different pitches so that you, you have a kind of polyphony. So you, it, it almost is like, you know, throat singing. You, you have three or four pitches going simultaneously. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very beautiful and kind of sad sounding to me. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's something sort of haunting about it. I remember in the late 1990s, I, I uh, had a young associate who was marveling at these because he had, he had thought for the longest time, living in Beijing for a few years, that pigeons, that was their natural sound. <laughs> that was the sound they made when flying uh, flying around. And that it was very odd that when they were on the ground, they made this kind of... <laughs> I must say, the first time I uh, heard it, I thought I was hallucinating. <laughs> I thought there's well, something wrong with were, my, yeah, my ears. I, I, you, you often were hallucinating back then, if I recall. <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're the most, uh, for me also, the most amazing sound. Um, it represents Beijing, really. Have you, have you managed to get that one yet? I'm I'm in the process of doing that right now um, because there are very going f- elaborate lengths to do this as I understand <laughs> yeah, because it's very hard to record. I mean, you can get an old guy to you know scream at the microphone in a studio, you know, um, imitating some street hawker. Uh, it's easy, or you can get someone to clank something together in a studio, but you can't get um, twelve pigeons to fly in a giant circle around in your studio. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's got to so, be some sort of like little microphone that you can. Yeah, because to. if you record them, even I mean, they're so rare now in Beijing. They used to be ubiquitous, and now it's so rare to hear pigeon whistles in Beijing. But even if you did and you found them. If you took a microphone and you recorded them, you record all the traffic noise and all the other sound crap that you you have, and you wouldn't be able. To, I wouldn't be able to use that in any other like uh, historical context. I wouldn't be able to use that recording in the 1930s or 50s or 60s or any right. other sound context. It would just be a, a sound file that would be kind of pretty much useless for me. Um, so I had to find another way. So. Um, I I found someone who keeps pigeons outside of Beijing 
So um, a pigeon keeper who, if you, if I find pigeons inside of Beijing, I take them outside of Beijing and say, fly around the circle, just fly home. That'd be completely useless. So I'd have to find somewhere where it's very silent outside of Beijing, where there's no railway tracks, there's no airplanes going above head, and that place. If I can train the pigeons to fly around the circle, then train the pigeons to get used to the idea of having this large object on their back. That this training process takes a few months. The, the microphone is the large object on their back. No, 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 no. The, the whistles. The, the whistles. Oh, 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 oh. Right. You're starting with the training. You have to train them from scratch. You have to. Yeah. Right. Okay. I told you he's right. going to elaborate later. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Sorry. Yeah. And and then and then we can go and and then record them.、Um, and so, you、right. record them with a boom mic, just held up into the air or high. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a good. Yeah. I've got、uh, a very very good sound technician to to help me with all recordings. So.、Um, you can still buy pigeon whistles, though. I mean. If if you go to you know the bird and fish market or or by Chugongzhuang or, or any place like that, they still sell and they're these、yeah. hand carved beautiful beautiful whistles.、Right? Yeah, so、um, I want to do it you know as as many different permutations as possible. There's there's seven different kinds of pigeon whistles and there's they're split into two different groups. There's the, the round bulbous type and there's、right. the, the kind of the pan pipe, pipe type that、yeah. you that you described and each one of those if, there's different numbers. So it might be just. One or three or even as much as seven different、um, uh, mm. tones that can come out of one pigeon whistle, and and traditional Beijing families was basically it was it was split into two different dengzi,、um, uh, uh, different kinds of grades.、Mm. One is the twelve pigeon group, which were kind of not、uh, big families, not rich families,、uh, just pigeon fanciers in general. And then for more aristocratic families. Um, they would have twenty-four、uh, pigeons flying around the circle, but not all of them would have pigeons on their backs. Otherwise, it wouldn't sound it wouldn't sound sad. It would just sound mad.、Right. So it was it would just sound like screaming cacophony.、Um, so all all you have is the, all this strange sad、um, combination of of sounds that you hear. This drone that you hear is basically is two or three pigeons out of the group that you see flying around. Right. Yeah, but I hope to have this by the end of the year. This this recording. Are you recording bird sounds as well? Yes, yeah, I'm recording.、Um, and、uh, everything has to be historically relevant, so I have to check whether you know、uh, which birds were in Beijing at which time. Yeah, because there is one bird, and it's our bird, Jeremy. The azure-winged magpie. That's right. Yes, all hail. <laughs> Have you got a recording of the azure-winged magpie? No, that's our, 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 yet, our well, show's mascot. It, it is. People never kept can... them as pets, I don't think. But,、um, <clears throat> okay. But it is a maybe I should have maybe I should find out what people they have their our sound and maybe I can like say you know sponsor a sound project or something like this you know own the sound and maybe people can like you know give the project a little tiny little bit of donating cash and then you can own a sound and well like, the Sonic <laughs> podcast will definitely sponsor the Zoo Wing Magpie <laughs> absolutely actually yeah count on us for for that. <clears throat> Colin, what a delight it has been to talk to you about this, and what a wonderful project that you're doing.、Uh, we need to 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 make recommendations for the week.、Uh, Jeremy, it's it's our habit to begin with you, so let's 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 see what do you have for this week. I just want to recommend if you're in Beijing, there's probably about another week before the weather gets really vile. And、um, Chaoyang Park, I've been visiting a lot recently. Well, it's because you live fucking I, next door. To yes, I mean, there's a, a reason. <laughs> But the,、uh, the the it's somehow connected with the today's podcast because they have、uh, callers for their roller coaster rides, and they have some pretty amazing rides, adrenaline-inducing. 
amazing rides at the moment. And there's one particular woman who I refer to as the harpy, who has a voice with a, a loudspeaker that can be heard about two kilometers away. And it's, <laughs> it's really quite a, uh, one of those awful noises of Beijing that is so bad it's good. So I'm recommending the harpy at Chaoyang Park. Well <laughs> and Colin, what do you have for us? I think there's a cool show on at UCCA, uh, which is a group of LA artists. And I think it's one of the nicest shows that uh, Yulin Center has, has put on recently. It's beautiful uh, so and impressive. Um, so At yeah. 798 in Beijing. At 798 in Beijing, yeah. The so Yulin got... Center for Contemporary That's Art, right. UCCA. And so for my recommendation this week, um, you know, of course, we, we've had uh, this this amazing occurrence in, in Hong Kong over, over um, it basically ruined my entire holiday because it had me just glued to Twitter and reading news the entire time. Um, I'm going to make a sort of uh, uh, sideways recommendation uh, in the spirit of... Uh, Knowing your enemy, as it were. I mean, I imagine that most people of of or listeners to this show are um, not big fans of either Martin Jakes, whose uh, piece I'm going to recommend. It was in the Guardian in in the comment is free section, uh, and Eric X Lee, who wrote uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post just uh, earlier this week. Neither of these I would by any means wholeheartedly agree with, but I think it's important to uh, to read these perspectives as they may shape your own thinking on, on Hong Kong. I know that uh, when I, I uh, post things like this on Facebook or, or, or elsewhere, I'm often pilloried for it and with the assumption that I, I'm endorsing this point of view, but uh, I, I really do sincerely intend only to recommend these as a way of, of knowing how the uh, the other side uh, sees these issues. Well, the People's Daily would certainly endorse the the Martin Jacques uh, article they've been using, and uh, I, I think CCTV, CCTV too extensively been, yeah. to discuss uh, the events with in Hong John Kong. John Ross's uh, the little uh, exclamations on on, uh, on on Weibo. Anyway, um, Colin, once again, thank you very much for for joining us on Seneca, and thank Jeremy, you. I'll see you next week, right? Yeah. All right, man. So uh, take care and tune in next week. Bye-bye.